Welcome to the Yours in Marketing podcast. Hey, it's Blake here. If this is the first time that you're joining us on the Yours in Marketing podcast, do me a favor. Please go wherever you get your podcast, doesn't matter where, and please review, rate, subscribe to the podcast right now. Well, or after the episode, whichever works for you. We're really looking for your support so that we can build this and make it even more valuable for you. So please rate, review, and subscribe the Yours in Marketing podcast. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. On this week's episode of the Yours in Marketing podcast, I speak with Ross Simmons, who is the CEO and digital marketing strategist at Foundation Marketing, among many other side projects that he has. He's a very active entrepreneur and very riveting to talk to. Here are a couple of things that we discussed that I think you'll find a lot of value in. First off, we talk about why content strategy doesn't just stop when you hit publish. Along those lines, we also talk about how distribution can be a game changer for any type of content. And we finish off by discussing the future of social media. He has a lot of great points on this. Very interesting. Without further ado, let's get right into the interview with Ross Simmons. All right. Welcome to the Yours in Marketing podcast. Today, I have Ross Simmons with us, who is a digital marketing strategist at Foundation Marketing. You also have your own side project called Hustle and Grind, right? And I'm not spreading blasphemy. This is this is true, right? That is true. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Hustle and Grind is one of the uh, many side hustles that I've been owning and operating for the last few years. And so give us an idea of all the other things that you're working on. Yeah, so I've uh, played in the software game quite a bit as well. We've launched everything from social curation tools to a new tool that we just released that is a dynamic favicon that keeps people back on your website. I've done a few small angel investments um, and I've been uh, actively creating e-commerce products and things of that nature for for quite a while. Awesome. So you, uh, you really have... Your work cut out for you. You've got all kinds of side projects. Sounds like you're not the kind of person that uh, likes to relax. No, I enjoy creating new things. I, I <laughs> always uh, always say like, for me, entrepreneurship is kind of like my creative outlet. I know that there's artists out there, there's designers, there's people who can paint. For me, I just create uh, cool organizations, cool companies and see how the market responds to them. We will definitely dive into that. I, my first question before we dive into too much, and then I want to take a step back after this, though, is if you have this entrepreneurial spirit, what's it like working at uh, another company? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So Foundation Marketing is actually my company as well. So I founded Foundation. It is your company. Okay. It is my company. So I found Foundation. I'm a, I go by digital strategist because that's typically the type of work that we mm. do for our clients. And that was kind of when I first started, I went into it as a digital strategist. And a few of my early clients were that. My official title would be Fancy Dancy CEO and digital strategist. But I found the company back in 2014 and it was just rossimmons.com. I started a blog and was creating content on a regular basis about digital marketing. And then over time, more and more people came to me for advice and for insights. And I started to uh, kind of turn that into a full-fledged company. And uh, today, we've been working with everything from Fortune 500 companies to some of the fastest growing startups. And uh, we are showing no signs of slowing down. It's been a lot of fun. There's, there's nothing better than me starting an interview with egg on my face. <laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> it happens to the best of us, right? Exactly. Uh, well, let's let's take a step back. I, I do want to talk about your career so far and just kind of starting from after college, why you decided to really go into the marketing sphere and yeah. how you ended up 
where you are now. Right. So I would say throughout university, I always had this itch for entrepreneurship. I had a fantasy football blog while I was in school and I was writing about fantasy sports. And I'm from a small place called Nova Scotia on the East Coast of Canada, population mm-hmm. less than a million people. And when I saw people reading my content, sharing my content from all over the world, it really triggered this insight that all you need is the internet and you can reach people anywhere. And that was when I said, okay, I need to double down my attention on the internet and start to understand how to use this for business. So I invested a lot of time and energy um, saying no to many nights out to just learn and understand uh, digital and technology and social media and how it would work and how to market on this channel. Because I was going to school and they were talking about radio ads, they were talking about billboard ads, But in the meantime, I would go into the library and everybody was on Facebook. Everybody was on Twitter. So I was like, this doesn't make any sense. All of the students are spending their time on these channels, but we're not learning about them (laughs) in school. So I spent time learning about it. And uh, very quickly, I ended up landing my first gig at a local agency, as well as our public broadcast, or uh, CBC, where I trained a handful of journalists and reporters on social media. And that's when the light bulb went off that, wow, if this type of a company wants to hear my thoughts on social, I'm sure others will too. So I quit and started up my own agency and uh, mm-hmm. been off to the races ever since then. Back then, the, the key platforms you were targeting were Facebook and Twitter, right? Where Instagram wasn't quite... There no, yet. Instagram wasn't there yet. It was primarily Facebook. Everybody was playing Jetman back then. I don't know if a few, some of your listeners <laughs> yes. remember, remember that, <laughs> but like it was back in the Jetman days when uh, people were using Facebook and you were able to actually give each other gifts on Facebook. You could buy like mm-hmm. coffee and give it to your friends and it was just a digital coffee. So those were the days when I jumped into the, the Facebook side. But blogging was definitely out of all of the channels, the one piece that probably differentiated me from um, a lot of my colleagues and uh, people who are in the market trying to kind of build a brand for themselves. So I just doubled down on this idea. I remember one year I told myself that I would publish a blog post every week, which I Looking back, it was a grind, but I wrote 52 blog posts in a year and it was a lot of bad content, but it got me into a cadence (laughs) of creating and shipping and getting comfortable with this idea of putting my ideas out there. And then from there, it just, uh, it kind of took off. What what was the, so you're, you were building your brand back then. How is it different than the brand you're trying to build now? Like what what were the key aspects that then you were focusing on versus what you're really trying to hammer home now? Yeah, so I think the biggest difference between then and now is back then I was trying to get any and every client, just trying to work with anyone. So I was writing blog posts about real estate. I was writing blog posts about tourism. I was writing blogs about startups. Now I've found the niche that gets me the most excited, which is B2B. And that's primarily what type of content I talk to and what type of content I create. Um, It's around B2B marketing. So organizations selling to other organizations and helping them scale their content marketing efforts through content. So that's been the focus over the last few years. Rather than talking about everything and anything, uh, it's been more niche down and focused around the B2B side of things. So let, let's dive into the into the content then. You said that blogging was one of the biggest things that really drove growth for you. I'm, I'm just curious because you've also mentioned the importance of not just publishing content, but you once you have that content published and it's good quality content, you actually have to make the effort to then dis- distribute it and redistribute it creatively right. over time. I'm just curious f- from your standpoint, if you have like a couple of game changing content distribution tips for marketers that maybe create content here and there and really could use that. Yeah, that's a great question, Blake. So I think oftentimes we get it caught up in this idea of 
once I press publish on a piece of content, I've succeeded. Like that's the end all be all. And that is the game that a lot of people play. But in reality, that's when the livelihood of your article really begins. That's when you need to put some more gasoline on the fire to make sure that that piece of content is reaching more people. Um, But oftentimes that's when we stop. We press publish on a blog post or it even could be a YouTube video. And we just say we're successful now. In reality, you need to spread that content aggressively. There's a handful of different ways that you can do it. I always say and recommend that you go and look for communities where your audience is spending time. Once you understand and identify, okay, my audience is spending, spending time on LinkedIn, then you have to strategically think about the different ways that you can distribute your content on LinkedIn. For example, if you are recording a podcast, maybe you're going to upload a video that goes with that podcast with captions, and it's just a short snippet. And that's going to be a video asset that lives on LinkedIn. You're also going to include a link to the actual full podcast when you share that video. Maybe you're going to write an article on LinkedIn with similar themes as the podcast itself. But within that article, you're going to be referencing this podcast and you might even embed it within that content. Maybe you're just going to share the link directly on LinkedIn. Maybe you're going to go find a handful of different LinkedIn groups and share all of that content that we just described in that same in those groups. Or maybe you're going to take that content, re-upload it to a channel like YouTube, and then take it from YouTube and upload it to LinkedIn as well. That's a lot on just one channel. And I think that the opportunity that exists is for you to take a similar thinking and a similar approach and apply that to every single channel where your audience is spending time. Whether it's Reddit, whether it's Facebook, whether it's LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, um, Snapchat, Instagram, you name it. Distribution is without question the most underrated element of the content marketing process. And organizations and people who understand that and are willing to spread their content, and it does take a little bit of hustle and work, you have an opportunity to differentiate yourself in the market and reach more people that people who are willing to just press publish and walk away are never going to reach. Um, I think that that is where there's tons of opportunities for people and people oftentimes overlook it. I actually have a uh, free guide that has 85 different content distribution tips that people can use. It's at rossimmons.com slash distro pack, D-I-S-T-R-O pack. And it's a free list of 85 ways to distribute your content. I also have a YouTube video about content distribution if anybody wants to check that out as well. Hold on, I'm, I'm t- t- taking notes. No worries. <laughs> um, so one thing that's interesting about that with distribution when you go on social media, you hear a lot about if I'm on LinkedIn, for example, or if I'm on Instagram, you post. And then a lot of people say within that first hour or two, yep. it's kind of the peak time where you need to still be engaging and distributing and trying to reach out to the community to get growth that quickly to the post for it to have optimal success. Yep. And I'm wondering if you've seen something similar with blogging, like after you hit publish, right. how long do you have to drive that engagement for optimal growth? Right. So blogging is a little bit different because the content exists forever with newsfeed channels like Facebook, Instagram, etc. They place a significant amount of value on recency. Google does too when it comes to organic search, but the recency is typically 12 months. So you actually have a decent amount of window to drive engagement. The types of engagement is also different. So there's a lot of value, don't get me wrong, in getting social shares in that article when you first press publish. But if over the life cycle of a piece of content, you're generating backlinks, so other websites are linking to your asset that is going to have probably the most significant indicator to Google that this is a piece of content that is relevant and that is valuable. If you've written a blog post or some type of article or ebook, 
let's say in 2017. And suddenly in 2019, that article is starting to generate tons of backlinks. If that content is getting a bunch of backlinks, Google is going to say something's going on. They're going to review it. And if the title of that article is relevant to a keyword that is picking up a lot of steam, you're very likely to get that article to start ranking in Google. So that's the best part about blogging and content creation. I have a piece of content that I wrote probably in 2014 that has generated a bunch of backlinks, that has gotten a bunch of traction in the early days. And because because those things happened in the past, it still reaps the benefits today. So that's one of the best parts of content creation. And it's not just blogging, it's with YouTube content, podcast content as well. Unlike social content that lives and dies pretty much the week it's published, this type of content can live forever and it can generate engagement for for years to come. Are, are there any like really common misconceptions around content distribution that you notice, like, uh, apart from just like not doing it, but right. is, are there any of those common misconceptions that you notice? Yeah, I think the biggest one is that people think that content distribution can oftentimes um, feel spammy and that it's just spam. Like if you're always just sharing your content over and over and over again, isn't your audience going to feel tired of it? And the reality is, for the most part, you think your audience is seeing this content, but they're not. Like I think a lot of people misunderestimate or overestimate how many people they're actually reaching when they share something on Facebook. I think a lot of people are overestimating how many people happen to be on Twitter the day that they send out their tweet and that post just doesn't catch any traction. I've done tests where I've shared the same piece of content on Twitter on different days and the amount of engagement that it got one day versus the next has been completely different. I just had a post that I shared earlier this week on Twitter that I also sent out like six months ago. Today, that post got a hundred and some retweets. Six months ago, it got two likes and one was from my mom. Like It's wild to see <laughs> the difference that happens if you are willing to kind of redistribute content that may just not have reached the, the right audience or hit the right chord at the time it was published the first time. Interesting. Are, are there... Any examples of blogs out there, people running blogs that you emulate in terms of how they're growing the right way, how they're making the right content for their audience? Yeah. So what I like to take a lot of inspiration from is the media companies. So I analyze the way that media companies are publishing content, what they're doing on a regular basis, rather than kind of looking at organizations who are trying to just figure out content marketing. So whether I'm looking at Vice, whether I'm looking at CBC, whether I'm looking at World Star Hip Hop, like I look at everything from BuzzFeed to any site. And I look at the way that they're sharing and distributing content. And I try to gain inspiration around what they're doing to kind of do that. Sites like Barstool, like it's, I'm not a huge Barstool fan, but I love what they do from a content standpoint because they understand the culture. And I think that what a lot of people misunderstand about content is the influence that it has on culture. And if you are creating content that's reaching masses, you have the ability to shape the way that they view their world, whether it's internally at an organization or whether it's in their real world life outside of the, the nine to five. And a lot of these companies really get that. And they're spreading content across multiple channels. They're using different content for different formats. They're understanding that different generations connect with different types of content. And just taking inspiration from all of the different realms has been, uh, has been super beneficial for me. I filled up uh, my RSS feeds when they were popular, just subscribing to every other asset that I could. And I think that, that's a lot, that there's a lot of value in that for content creators. You need to 
be willing to geek out about the way that other organizations are creating content, whether it's New York Times, whether it's CNN, it doesn't matter. I think that there's tons of value that you can get just by consuming content from other parties. And even in the political side, like you can subscribe to organizations that might not hold the same views as you, and you can still reverse engineer, okay, why did they write this piece? Why did this resonate so well with people? And how can you take inspiration from that to create content in the future that will um, that will resonate with folks as well? Yeah, it sounds like your your theory really is to to do a deep dive of anything you can find and really reverse engineer and dissect it before actually just putting something out, right? But a hundred percent. I love the, yeah, the reverse engineering piece is important. I think that that's, um, a lot of people get caught up in this idea of you always have to start from scratch. I call it the Sherlock homeboy effect. It's like, I fully go into every channel and I'm willing to reverse engineer what made a piece of content successful and use that to kind of guide my own direction in the future. You don't have to write the same piece as somebody else. You don't have to use the same title, but if you can understand the principles that went into making that piece work and apply that to your own industry and your own space, there's a massive opportunity for people to, to leverage that and grow from. Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious as to kind of your journey. Like if, you, if you would indulge me in a thought experiment here, for just sure. talking about building your brand through content and yep. looking at what you've done in the past. I know you mentioned you put out 52 blogs in the year and a yep. lot of that probably wasn't the greatest content you've ever put out, but you no. did it. Right. And I'm, I'm curious, like if, if I say, let's reverse engineer your journey so far in building your own brand to help somebody else that's just starting out to build theirs, right. what kind of advice would you give them along the way to, to start, get to a good middle and then like end up where they want to be? Yeah, so I think for me, the biggest piece was embracing this idea of experimentation. So every year I still to this day challenge myself to try something new and experiment until I can consider myself one of the best at that specific thing. Early on, one of my experiments was with a website called SlideShare. And I challenged myself in a course of a year to make a significant investment in SlideShare, both financially and time-wise, to understand that channel. So I went all in, I learned how to use it. I was able to generate millions of views on my content. And I was able to then go out and talk about the lessons that I learned. And I was an authority on that channel because I was one of the early people using it. And I was able to crack the code in terms of success. I also said to myself, another year, I need to crack the code as it relates to Reddit. So that was a challenge for myself. I ended up getting blocked from Reddit and banned three times in that year. But I got (laughs) back on and I eventually cracked the code to how to be successful on Reddit as well. So then I started to talk about Reddit. I started to create content about my lessons from Reddit. Uh, And it is, again, inspired from an experiment. I did the same thing on Instagram where uh, three years ago, I went all in on Instagram with an experiment. I was like, I need to grow this account called Hustle and grind to over 100,000 people and see how to do that. Once I hit 100,000 people, I was like, okay, I cracked the code on this channel. Let's write about some of the lessons that I've learned. Let's talk about this experiment. Now that I have all of these followers, maybe I should monetize this and start selling posters and coffee as well turned it into a business. So experimentation has been a huge part of my career. And then writing about the lessons that come out of those experiments have given me the authority to talk about a variety of different subjects that I wouldn't have been able to unless I actually got my hands dirty with these experiments. So I think that's the biggest piece. I would push anyone not to just reverse engineer my path and say, okay, I need to experiment with Instagram, SlideShare, Reddit, et cetera, but more to look at, okay, What is very interesting to you as an individual? How can you experiment with it? 
How can you gain lessons out of that experimentation phase? And then what can you create that talks about the cool things that you've learned and that you've done? That is the, the model that I have used, and it's been uh, definitely successful. It requires, it requires the risk of maybe not cracking the code. And to be transparent, like YouTube is one of my channels that I've been experimenting recently. I'm not happy with how my experiments have gone because I'm not <laughs> killing it on YouTube yet. But I am committed in 2020 to continue to ride that wave until I can make it work. So I think it comes down to just being willing to experiment and uh, learn along the way. Uh, Other than YouTube, do you have any other experiments that have actually failed? Good question. So I felt like a failure when I jumped on Reddit and I was blocked, banned three times. That (laughs) definitely was painful. Medium.com, when I first jumped on Medium as an experiment, I Mm -hmm. took a bunch of my content, press published, thought it would be a success, but it was not. It failed. But again, I went back and I started to study it and understand how to make that channel work for me. And it was eventually successful. So yeah, I think a lot of it for me comes down to experiment learn a lesson. If you fail, that's okay as long as a lesson comes out of it. And then uh, just try to fine-tune your craft until you can actually jump into these channels and know how to how to use them for your own advantage. Sure. Well, content, I mean, obviously, back, back when you were starting, you mentioned that blogging was one of the biggest things. Now social media has totally taken over as yeah. kind of the, the go-to for content distribution and sure. for trying to build your brand. Blogging is hard compared to social media. Yeah. I mean, blogging, you, you could write 12,000 words for a really robust killer article, or you could put out a tweet, and it's it's so much more appealing to, to lean towards social media. But do you think that blogging right now, that there's more opportunity than maybe even when you started because people are realizing that there are other places that may be easier? Yeah, so I think that's a great point. So I think there's a spectrum of difficulty um, that actually translates directly into the value you can extract from a channel. Um, And this is a theory that I've just been thinking about as we've been talking. But I think like one tweet can definitely have a significant impact on your reach, your engagement, it can change your life, etc. But one blog post, I think, that has similar reach as that asset can have a much bigger impact. Beyond even the written word, I would say things like video content can have a much deeper and stronger impact on someone if you have a video piece of content that goes extremely viral, connects with millions of people. I think video content has the same, a similar opportunity. Same with podcasting. Um, podcasting is an opportunity where it's very intimate, where you're inside of somebody's head, usually with earphones, and you're talking yeah. to them. And that is a very intimate relationship. So I think that the more difficult it is to create a piece of content, the bigger the ROI has the potential to be until you get to a point where you have the masses subscribe to your content. So if you are somebody who already has a million followers on Twitter, then by all means, send out a tweet, impact the world, impact the the way that people think. That's great. But in the early days, when you have five followers on Twitter and you have five readers, I think it's more impactful to create a piece of content that is more meaningful and more rich through video or through a written blog post or an ebook or a podcast and connect with them that way than it is with a 280 character tweet. Sure. But well, for, for you, I'd be interested to know personally, like what's, what do you think is the absolute hardest platform to actually make an impact on? Ooh, good question. So the hardest right now, hmm, that is a great question. I think they're all difficult in their own way. And I think that it definitely depends on your own strength. 
So I think a lot of, some people are really good at the written word and they can be amazing behind the keys and they can create some amazing written content. And they're just not great in front of a video camera and that's okay. So in those cases, I advise people to lean into their strengths and own the fact that they're really good at written word and to double down on that. Channels like TikTok, for example, require a lot of creativity. They also require a little bit of understanding of video technology and video editing and things of that nature. If you want to kill it on that channel. So for me, that's probably not where I can play at this point anyway, because I'm not an expert at video editing. I'm not um, savvy enough to understand, okay, how can I make this quirky and interesting, but still get across a business message that would work for my brand? But some people can. And I think that you just have to figure out what your strengths are, lean into those ones. But at the current moment, if I was to answer your question, what's the most difficult for me? It would be a channel like TikTok because I don't really understand how I could uh, deliver that type of value. So if any of your listeners are TikTok fans and avid users and you have advice, hit me up as uh, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> I think TikTok across the board is the hardest one for businesses to understand. Like yeah. when LinkedIn came along, it's really easy to understand how that's going to impact your business, even right. Facebook. And then Instagram, especially for B2C, it's very simple to see yeah. how that can impact you. But you look at, at TikTok and even Snapchat, I think as well. Yeah. Both of those, you look at it and you're like, how am I going to make that work for a business? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so true. A little tough. It is tough. I want to dive into the social media a little bit more with you because I think you probably have some really cool insights about this, but I have some very existential social media questions that I want to dive into. Like the next big thing in social media, we've we've seen this wave of video becoming kind of coming to the forefront of social media lately for the past few years, I guess. But what do you think is the next big thing? Yeah, so I think it's... It's interesting, right? Because when you think about video content, I think we're still only in the early days of what its potential is. I think that we will consume video content differently in the future as things like automated cars become a more real thing. We're going to be able to always be glued into video content of some sort. It's no longer going to be driving and you have to keep your eyes on the road because there will be somebody else driving for you. It'll be automated. So uh, drivers will have more time to consume video content. Does that mean the entire windshield will be a video and you can consume video content directly in your car, like across the entire vehicle? Like I know that sounds a little sci-fi, but That's where I think long-term the world is going to go, where we have more time to consume content. The cost of data continues to get cheaper and cheaper, which is going to make more opportunities to consume more interesting and unique, immersive video pieces of content. We're all very visual people at the end of the day. I think that there's a significant opportunity in the video side of things that is just at the beginning right now, uh, which is why I made that call to say like, yes, I'm going to start investing in YouTube because I think video is without question the future. When I started my journey in the marketing world, I learned everything through written word. I read blog posts, I read eBooks, I downloaded white papers. Mm -hmm. But as I'm hiring people and they're coming fresh out of school, one of the biggest differences that I'm noticing is that they want to watch YouTube videos. They want to consume video courses. They want to consume the content through video. And it's different, but it's just showing the shift in the way that people consume content. And I think that it's going to continue down that path. And that's why the rise of sites like TikTok and Snapchat don't surprise me because video is going to continue to play um, a significant role. And if we wanted to go 
a little bit further from the device standpoint, still today, mobile phones have been the biggest device shifter that has impacted the way that we behave. I think augmented reality, virtual reality, all of those things will also continue to increase in terms of adoption. Um, we're still a ways out, like it's not going to happen next year. Uh, but I think that those will have an influence on the way we consume content as well, especially when we look at the next generation. I think that what you're talking about with video there, especially in the going forward in the future, is a huge reason why something like podcasting is big right now. Yeah. When, you know, it's it's something that you can consume at any point in your life. It doesn't matter if you're driving. It doesn't matter if you're in the shower. It doesn't matter if you're at work. Exactly. You can be consuming content in a podcast because yep. it doesn't require you, you know, like you said, we're so visual that some sometimes our, our visuals in front of us are more important than watching a video like when we're driving or something like that. But we can still have the audio in at basically any point. And the more it becomes easy to watch videos and not have it be dangerous, then I, I think that's an excellent point, but also explains kind of where podcasting's at right now. And True. maybe leads me to believe that it may not have such a great future, uh, potentially just because video adds another element and it, it'll all be video podcasting in the future. I think, yeah, I think we're still a little, I think podcasting is without question right now, one of the biggest, most underrated and underestimated channels of content too. Like I do buy into the idea that because podcasts are so intimate, like I was describing, like it's in your ears, like that's huge. I think that there is still a while before we get to a place where all of the cars are automated. And because of that, I think this is the best format uh, for consuming on the road, whether you're on a treadmill, whether you're walking a dog, whatever it may be, you can consume podcast content. And even with video content to that point, if I'm walking my dog, I don't think I should be watching a video. I might get hit by a car or something, right? So I do think there is a lot of value still in podcasting. Um, And hats off to you for taking the the leap into this space. I think it's a a great service to the community, but also just in general, it's a smart uh, strategic business move. But like, I think podcasting has a a long life ahead of it. It's going to be one of the formats that are definitely currently underinvested in that will be invested in heavily come 2025. Like if we have this conversation in five years, I think that it will be, um, we'll be starting to see some significant numbers being thrown at podcasting. Yeah, it's going to be huge. For sure. But I'm interested to know what, what platform you think is most likely to be extinct in the next 10 years. Ooh, good question. Huh, that's a good one. Oh, I think, I don't know if it will be extinct, but I think it's going to look extremely different is Facebook. Facebook is the biggest social network in the world right now. So it kind of sounds wild that somebody would say that it's going to be extinct, which is why I don't think it'll be completely extinct. But I do feel like it's going to look a whole lot different from what it does today in terms of the way that people use it and the way that people engage in the traditional Facebook from a Facebook sense. Like people forget that Facebook also owns Instagram and WhatsApp. Like it's... It's not going anywhere anytime soon as a corporate entity, but I do believe that Facebook, the original experience is going to change in terms of how, how it's used. And we're going to see a reduction in the, uh, the number of adoption and monthly active users, et cetera. Do you, do you use Facebook on a regular basis now? I do. I use Facebook on a regular basis. I think I'm a power user on all channels just because of my work. Um, but I think, mm-hmm. uh, I'm seeing the trend. I've seen my a reduction in my usage of Facebook from a 
normal consumer perspective um, and an increase in my usage of Twitter and Instagram, um, even Snapchat for a while, but it's starting to go down as well. But I think that's a trend that I've started to notice is that I'm seeing fewer and fewer people using Facebook as like a channel to connect with their family and friends like they used to. It's starting to be more of a place like uh, Craigslist and Kijiji where everyone is in these marketplaces and Facebook groups is big, but I'm not seeing as much personal content as I used to. It's so it's so interesting that you you're talking about Twitter at like right now as one of the more engaging platforms, but yeah. I remember a time a few years ago where it almost seemed like Twitter was going to die. Yeah. And it's yeah. so funny how that just shifts. And now with all the privacy things with Facebook, it it just shifts everything. It makes you think, "Oh yeah, okay, I could see a universe where Facebook goes away and Twitter is bigger than Facebook, which blows right. my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any platforms that currently exist that you think this is only going to get bigger over the next five years? Yeah, I'm, I'm really sold on Instagram. I think Instagram is doing uh, a lot of things right. I think it was one of the the best acquisitions in business history, to be honest, for Facebook. I think it was a massive win and massively underestimated in terms of their valuation. And it was a, a great win. I think it sold for a billion and the valuation of Instagram alone right now is probably worth oh, more yeah. than $10 billion. Um, So <laughs> it was definitely a great acquisition from that standpoint. I think YouTube, I talked about video before. I think video and YouTube are going to continue to rise. And YouTube has a great competitive advantage. I know many don't consider it a social network, but I do feel like we're going into a time where people are so empowered with their own mobile devices that everybody wants to be a creator. I went to a school the other day to speak to a group of students and I asked a bunch of them, like, what do you guys want to be when you grow up? And they said they want to be YouTubers. And I was like, whoa, yeah. this is different. <laughs> they want to be YouTubers. What does that yeah. mean? It means they want to <laughs> game. They want to create um, makeup tutorials. They want to do DIY. They want to do reviews on books that they're reading. It was fascinating. So for me, I think the same way that a lot of uh, my generation viewed Facebook and Instagram as like their go-to channels for sharing content about their own lives and creativity, I think the next generation is really going to double down on video and YouTube has the advantage because they're um, massive and because they are owned by Google, which is sending the vast majority of the traffic to YouTube as a video source. So I think that that's going to continue to play a role. And I think that YouTube is massively underrated and has the potential uh, to take on a form of a social network where people are viewing it every single day to see what their friends are uploading as uh, YouTubers. YouTube's another one of those that's interesting because I, I don't know if it was before Facebook or after, but it's one of the oldest social media platforms, if you consider it that, out there. Right. Older than Instagram, for sure. Older than Snapchat. Older than TikTok. And it's got this longevity about it. And I think that speaks to the power of video. Yeah. Is, do you feel like, I know you're you're hitting YouTube hard right now, but do you see a scenario where you're going to go even further with video and really focus on that across all platforms? Because right now... Facebook still, they try to do video. LinkedIn tries to do video, but it's predominantly text-based. Right. Are, are you going to like totally shift and say, I'm all in on video for everything? I wouldn't go all in on video across everything just because I still, like my bread and butter is still the written word, like creating content, 
um, is something that I really enjoy. If I can write a piece of content, it helps me get clarity around a certain topic, but it also gives me the opportunity to make edits to that content if my views change, which is powerful just from a personal professional development standpoint. So I'll never get away from writing. I love writing. It was probably my first love and it got me into my career. But I do feel like I'm going to continue to try video content and experiment with video content across all channels. So I have already started investing in getting videos chopped up and skewed and turned into content that will work natively well on IGTV, for example. So I've pushed out content on Instagram TV to see how that goes. I've gotten captions added to videos and I've shared those on the Instagram feed, but I've also had them resized for LinkedIn. So I'm definitely trying to leverage the fact that video content is here to stay and it's going to work across a wide variety of different channels. Um, But I will never probably get to a point where it's like, no, I don't do written content anymore. I'm all in on video just from this perspective of I love um, taking some time to get a nice coffee, pulling out my keyboard and writing uh, some ideas down. I want to I shift a little bit to talking about your speaking engagements because I, there are definitely a lot of marketers out there specifically that are viewing this as a big opportunity. More and more conferences are becoming open, um, more opportunities to speak, but it's still very competitive. I'm, I'm just curious if we could go through your journey a little bit of how you got started on the speaking circuit. Like, What were the first steps you took to land the first opportunity? Yeah, so the first opportunity was a local conference that was actually free and you could apply to speak at. Uh, and it was a social media digital conference that was all dedicated to like just the internet and anyone who works on the internet. So I applied to speak about social media. It was my first talk. I was fresh out of university. I hadn't get done public speaking before. I was very nervous. My nickname in high school was Shy Ross. So when this opportunity came up, I was like, oh, this is going to be a disaster. So I signed up. I spoke. I sweated through my shirt. It was very messy. It was gross. And uh, (laughs) I thought it was a horrible talk. But a couple of people came up to me afterwards and they said, good job. I think they were just saying it to be nice. But I told myself that that was kind of like one of my early experiments. I need to get better at public speaking and it needs to be something that I can become really good at. So I kept signing up. And I just kept speaking at local events. I started to send emails to people who ran organizations. And I was like, hey, I'll give a lunch and learn at your company. And I'll just talk about social media. And hopefully your team can learn something from it. And I did that aggressively for about a year. Um, And eventually, I got better at it. I got improved. I decided that I was going to bring a video camera with me to one. I recorded it. And I started using that to level up in terms of the size of the event. So I started to reach out to bigger events. And they started to say yes. And the more and more that I did it, the bigger the opportunities became that I could reach out to. And the bigger the opportunity, the bigger opportunities that kind of came from those. So if I spoke at one large conference, I could likely pitch another large conference. And as I started to get on the speaking trail at a lot of these large conferences, other conference attendees and organizers would be there. They would hear me speak. And when I got good at it, more came knocking on my door. And now I've been able to kind of speak all over the world, whether it's in Europe, whether it's the US, across Canada. It's been amazing. It's given me the opportunity to make some amazing friends, some amazing contacts, to do great business with some great people. And uh, I wouldn't change it for uh, for anything. I love public speaking. Speaking, the ability to really connect with an audience and give them value is uh, is an honor. So I, I love it. Are there any like specific actions you took? Like, are, is there any 
database you use to try to find these conferences? Yeah. Is there a, is there a script you had for, for doing outreach? Like what, what really worked for you that could work for other marketers that are looking to do this? So I think one of the earliest things that I did was I went to a site called Eventbrite and I looked through mm-hmm. Eventbrite local events, tagged it with marketing, tagged it with tech, and I reached out directly to the organizers of those events. The cool thing about Eventbrite is it tells you who the organizers are. So I started to reach out directly to them. When I first jumped into this, there was also a site called Lanyard. I don't think Lanyard is still around today, but I went through and I was just reaching out to these organizers and my script was very straightforward. Hey, I noticed you don't have anybody on the lineup that will speak about this. I would love to speak about this for your audience if you're interested. And oftentimes that would have been something like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. And if they didn't have anyone on the, on the card, I would be the, the fill-in for that. Um, mm-hmm. So that was my way in for a lot of conferences. It was doubling down on, hey, I can speak about this topic. And I sometimes didn't even have any uh, presentation ready for that topic, but I would create one specifically for that event and I'd go in and do my thing. And if it went well, uh, more opportunities would shine from there. I guess just looking at this, I I think there are a lot of people out there that are, like I mentioned, that that are really looking to get into the speaking, but maybe find it difficult to know how to come up with great presentation topics. Like, do you have any, Mm -hmm. any clues or hints as to like, what makes a great presentation um, topic. And I'm not, I mean, obviously building it out is a totally separate thing, but just coming up with that initial thing that's specific and unique to you. That's not something that everybody else talks about. Like, did you have any kind of process for that? Yeah. So good question. I think for me, it came from, again, reverse engineering. So I talked about this before I reverse engineered. What are some of the most popular YouTube videos on the web? What are some of the most popular blog posts in the web? And I looked for trends and similarities between them. And I quickly started to realize that the pieces that generated the most engagement and most conversations typically had a combination of both theory and tactics. They weren't just tactic-driven and they just weren't theory-driven. They had a combo of both. So when I was pitching my ideas, I would oftentimes try to blend the two of those where my presentation would be a bit of theory, but also have some clear takeaways that people could act on when they left my talk. So I think that's really the starting point from it. I also would advise that people think about what trends are interesting that nobody else on the on the agenda or on the speaker lineup are speaking about. And if you can find that topic and you can own it and speak on it, that also gives you a great way to differentiate and will always increase the likelihood of getting people to sit in and listen to what you have to say. So for me, that was things like SlideShare, that was things like Reddit, that was things like content distribution, because again, When I first started talking about distribution, not a lot of people were. So these were some things that I used to my advantage where um, I was able to talk about something that nobody else at the conference was speaking about. And that would give me a a quick differentiation amongst the noise. I want to kind of go back a little bit to the very beginning, just talking about how you were able to juggle all this because you had public speaking. I mean, the the engagement there is crazy. You have to yeah. fly out all over the place. You have to spend hours at a conference. There's right. the prep time that nobody else sees. Yep. Then on top of that, you're running a company, you're running right. side projects, you've got your you've got whatever your family, your dogs, yep. you've got all this other stuff going on. Yeah. How have you been able to just say, okay, I can juggle this, but here's how I'm gonna be able to do it? 
Yeah, so it's definitely not been a linear, easy process. I've gotten to a point now where it's extremely manageable. And I think that's because I have an amazing team and I have an amazing partner. And we've been able to all kind of come together to figure out how to make this work. So right now, it's easy in many ways. Because I have a great partner, I have a great team that holds down the fort at Foundation. And I have a great team that's leading products and shipping content and managing content calendars, et cetera, managing client relationships, et cetera. Those things are all um, being well taken care of um, just because of the kind of life that I've built now. Early days, though, it was a grind. It was not easy. Um, (laughs) There was a lot of times where uh, I was staying up until 4 a.m., 3 a.m., losing sleep, and it sucked. It was not enjoyable. And I don't glamorize it at all. I understand like some people just can't stay up until 3 a.m., and I'm not pushing anyone to do it. But for me, that was the, the only way I could find a way to do it. So I grinded a lot. I put in a lot of late hours and late nights and my body probably suffered from it. Um, But at the same time, I think that the biggest piece that did change everything for me, because in the very early days, it was a nonstop 4am. But at a certain age, I was like, I can't keep doing this anymore. Calendars changed everything for me. So I have this acronym CREAM that I stole from Wu-Tang, which is calendars rule everything around me. And if something is not in my calendar, that's something typically doesn't get done. So I embrace my calendar for my personal life and for my professional life. So when there's date night, it's in my calendar. When there's time for me to write a piece of content, it's in my calendar. If I'm doing a fantasy football draft with my friends, it's in my calendar. Dinner, in my calendar. Night night, now that I have a daughter, that's in my calendar. So I make sure that my calendar is always well-maintained, always well-managed because time is all that we have and uh, you can't get time back unlike money. So I invest a lot of time in optimizing my time as much as possible. And I probably spend probably 30 minutes a day just reviewing my calendar to make sure that I am optimizing it and that I've spent my time in the past few days extremely well and it's aligned with where I want to be and what I want to be doing. It sounds like to me then, correct me if I'm wrong, but for you and, and for many other people, I think it's it'll be the same, but it's going to be more important if you're trying to juggle multiple things in your life and have side projects, it's more important to work hard on the foundation and the process than yeah. it is to actually just do all kinds of hard work randomly. And I think we'll run into that as you know all all the time. You've got I've I've got to do this side project. I've got to do my normal job. I've got to do my family stuff. And try instead of trying to just work hard at all those things separately, work hard at building out the process for yeah. how that's going to be easy in the future. Right. If you work hard on the foundation, the rest of it kind of falls into place a little better. A hundred percent. And you can do so much up front, right? Like there's great tools like Zapier. Like if there's anything that you're doing. Mm-hmm on a regular basis over and over again, and it's pretty much the same task, find a way to automate that. Like You don't need to do the same thing over and over again when you're just clicking a button and moving something a certain way. There's probably somebody who has written a script or some type of Zapier connection that you can use to automate that tool or automate that step in your life. So I embrace automation. I embrace figuring out how to hire someone to do certain things for me that are not kind of worth my time in terms of me doing. And I think that that's key. I think you need to be humble enough to know uh, where you actually are adding additional value and where you're just doing things to make yourself busy and fill up your calendar and outsource or automate the things that don't uh, that you can't be the best at that other people can do just as good as you. I have one final question for you. And it's pretty, pretty simple, but just curious if you could invite, if you had like a, a call to action for 
in-house marketers or any basically any marketer as a whole to change one thing about the typical content strategy, what would that invitation be? Spend as much time distributing your content as you did creating it. That would be the first starting point that I would give any marketer. We spend hours, hours, and hours stressing over whether an infographic looks right, whether an ebook sounds good. And we press publish and we call it a day. And we never actually spend any time promoting that content beside pressing share on Twitter and share on Facebook and maybe sending out an email to our newsletter. You need to be more aggressive with your distribution of your content and you need to ensure that it's built into your process. So everyone in your organization understands the, the value of distribution, but also the, the steps that are taken after you press publish to ensure that you can reach the most people as possible. I actually lied. I have another question. All right. <laughs> you mentioned, this is totally unrelated, but you mentioned fantasy football twice. So yes. I, I, need, <laughs> I need to talk about this for, for just a minute. Fair. Do you have a, Do you have a team that yeah. you follow? So I'm a diehard Eagles fan. I've been a diehard Eagles fan before they won the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> it's been uh, a long time coming. But yeah, I've been a fan of the Eagles since I was a, a wee top. <laughs> so the Donovan McGear- McNabb years were... They were tough. I had a lot of tough. chunky soup. I ate a lot of chunky soup back then. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, it's it's looking rough after last night again. I'm yeah, so sorry. <laughs> it's all right. I, I like to put it this way, though. Every year that I've been really high on the Eagles, which for the vast majority of my life has been every year except for the year they won the Super Bowl they've done bad and the years that I don't believe they win the Super Bowl so I don't believe right now that we have a good team so you never know what's going to happen you never know what's going to happen well we will see well Ross it was awesome having you on again Ross Simmons he is the CEO and digital marketing strategist at <laughs> Foundation Marketing, among so many other things. But I would love to just give you a chance to talk about what you're building currently. Um, if you have any any call to action for the audience here and where they can find you on social media as well. Yeah, so I think the best place to find me is definitely rossimmons.com. Uh, that's my blog, personal site, but also you can find me on Twitter at the coolest cool. Uh, don't forget to check out the distribution pack that I mentioned, rossimmons.com slash distro pack. Uh, 85 easy ways that anybody can start to distribute your content more, more aggressively. I think it's an amazing resource that will help you spread your content. Um, so definitely check that out. If you're interested in learning more about Foundation, go to foundationinc.co. But yeah, hit me up. I'm easy to find, rossimmons.com, Twitter, YouTube, I'm on all of the major channels. I would love to connect with you. And Blake, thank you for having me on. I really uh, hope your listeners can get some value out of this. Like I said earlier, my hat's off to you for creating great value for your audience and for your community and helping uh, helping uh, spread the word around uh, good content and all that good stuff. So thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And that's it for today's episode. Again, if you're a first-time listener or you've been at it since the beginning, please go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Wherever you get your podcasts, we've got you covered anywhere you want. 